Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, at least that's what I used to say at the beginning of every episode, and like I keep saying on these newer episodes, I have to come up with something different, but I just can't. It just flows off the tongue, and I said it for so long, and I, I kind of want to stay true to, to what it originally was, but uh, anyway guys, for those of you who are returning, longtime listeners, Thanks for coming back, everyone. And for those of you who might be tuning into the first time, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Uh, as I said, this originally started as one man's musings on the works of Stephen King, and um, I, I worked my way through the entirety of Stephen King's collection, with the exception of uh, just a couple stories here and there and, and some stories from his his actually um, uh, short story collections. Uh, but for the most part, I, I have made my way through the entirety of Stephen King's works, and uh, that also includes a lot of his movies, the ones that were based on uh, on a lot of his his short stories. And uh, so, what what I have been doing lately, I, I've reviewed uh, Netflix's Stranger Things because Stranger Things was clearly inspired by Stephen King, and I thought that that uh, was was fitting. Uh, and what I'll be doing beginning with this episode is I am going to be reviewing Jonathan Maberry's Pine Deep Trilogy, and this episode uh, will be devoted to the, the first entry in that trilogy, Ghost Road Blues. So if you're curious and, and kind of just questioning why I uh, something called the Stephen King cast is not talking about Stephen King, the reason is because... If you are a fan of Stephen King, then you are going to definitely enjoy the Pine Deep trilogy. It feels very, very Stephen King. I guarantee you, you're going to enjoy it. I strongly recommend it. And because we still have some time to go before Halloween is actually here, we are neck deep in Halloween season. You owe it to yourself. Um to go out and, and acquire this treat. And it is a treat. It is not a trick. You will enjoy Jonathan Madbury's Pine Deep Trilogy, and I'm really looking forward to uh, discussing it here at the Stephen King cast. But before I get any further, and this is going to be a long episode, guys, so so buckle in. Uh, but be go, before I go any further, I, I do want to, there's some stuff that I, I, I want to get out of the way. Um, the first of which is just the sound quality. In the background, if you hear some some machinery, I am, in, I am back in my basement recording this, and my wife just put in a load of laundry, so I apologize for that. Uh, if it is distracting, it will shut off eventually. Um, but if, if you just wanted to know what that noise was, that is what that noise is. Um, up next, what I want to talk about, I, I just want to talk about my own short stories, uh, which you can find at, at the following places once I, be, I begin to discuss them. But as you know, for those of you who have been listening for a while, I have been lucky enough this past year to, to have a number of my own short stories published. And uh, if you have been curious as to, to, to see how, how well I do in, in, in the realm of genre, the following places you can find my short stories. You can find my short story Spouse Swap in the pages of Ink Stains uh, Volume 2. You can get that at uh, Amazon and Spouse Swap examines the reality and the unreality that's found within reality television. 
You can also find the short story The Portrait in the Skeptics Must Die anthology. You can find, and the portrait is about two bumbling uh, ghost hunters that, that uh, are looking for a haunted portrait in this mansion, and it's all about what happens when they find the portrait. You can find my short story Forget-Me-Not in the pages of the, the Trysts of Fate um, publication, and Forget-Me-Not is an existential examination of relationships and identity in, in, in a relationship. You can find my short story Hopscotch in the pages of Wax and Wayne, A Gathering of Witch Tales. Just uh, all of these uh, stories that are included in that particular publication revolve around witches. And my short story Hopscotch involves a 13-year-old girl encountering a much, much and darker evil than she. In the pages of Dark Moon Digest, issue number 22, you will find my short story Room 207, in which a uh, husband uh, is driving down south to get to his wife's sister's funeral. And on the way, he stops at uh, a motel. Um, and unfortunately, it's next door to the, the room that he has. It's, it's next door to room 207. Find out what's in two, room 207 by picking up Dark Moon Digest issue 22. And lastly, you can find my short story, This World Will Eat You All the Way Up in the pages of Nine Tales Told in the Dark, which you can acquire at Amazon. So any of those stories, feel free to, to, to check out, guys. I would really appreciate it. And now I want to get into some iTunes reviews because I am so fortunate that at this time I have 90 iTunes reviews, which just blows my mind. There was a period in my life when I sat down to, to do my very first episode of the Stephen King cast, and I did not know what this was going to, to look like or how many listeners uh, I would have. And hundreds of thousands of, of downloads later, um, I'm, I'm so lucky lucky to have uh at this point 90 itunes reviews so mailman eric writes just like stephen king this podcast is a little bit magic a little bit of enjoyment that can make your day so thank you mailman eric and good love and five writes simply the best podcast well thought out and produced i'm not sure i always agree with some of analysis of his analyses but i certainly enjoy agreeing or disagreeing I consider each podcast on King's novel a companion piece and encourage everyone to check it out. Only 30 more episodes to go. I'll miss it when I'm finished. So good love and five. Thank you for your um, iTunes review. And anyone out there that, that hasn't headed on over to iTunes, feel free to do so because another review, uh, what's going to happen is every review that I get, it, it, it just gives the Stephen King cast um, more credibility and it, um, it'll, it it makes it easier for a library search. So, uh, you know, if you have a couple minutes on on your hands, head on over to iTunes and, and uh, hook a brother up. And then now I want to read a listener email because, as you guys know, I can't do those without you. Um, and for anyone that hasn't written to uh, written an email yet, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And uh, I'll, I'll definitely share your thoughts on the air. So Jose writes, Dear Constant Reader, I've been listening to your podcast since June. I found it randomly as, as I was trying to search for an entertainment weekly podcast that had King... Uh, huh, so that had King on to talk about the Dark Tower movie. I saw the multitude of episodes you had and downloaded a few to try. I haven't stopped since. I credit my dad for getting me into Stephen King when I was young. We watched It when it first aired, then The Langoliers when that aired. He showed me Creepshow and Christine and anything else King-related. 
As I got older, I started reading King's books. Misery is one of my all-time favorites, and I loved your episodes on both the book and the film. I got to see the Broadway version of Bruce Willis and Laurie Metcalf this past January. It was fantastic, mixing elements from the book and the movie. My other favorite is On Writing, a book recommended by a friend which has since turned into an annual read for me and available tool in my own writing. I self-published a short story anthology a few years ago, and I can say that On Writing gave me the confidence to try and put something out to the public. I'm so glad you're covering Stranger Things. When I first saw it, there were some points I was wondering if you are going to talk about it based on the many Stephen King-isms. I'm so happy you're not only talking about it, but going episode by episode. Finding the podcast randomly has been amazing, and it's helped me get through my workday, my commute, and even the gym. Keep up the amazing work, and thank you for everything. Jose. Jose, thank you uh, so much for writing in. Um, you know, I as I've said in previous podcasts, I, I know the importance of a podcast in, in my life and the enjoyment that I get when I check my feed and I see that there's a, a new episode and I get excited the, the night before knowing that the next day a new episode is going to be dropping. And so I, I know that feeling and, and to know that I'm giving that level of enjoyment to, to others really it's just it's 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 why I do this. Um, and congratulations on the on, on your own writing. Uh, I, I think that it's it's definitely a difficult thing to do, um, and one thing that has really helped me uh, is the, the the podcast, the Story Grid podcast. If you're not listening to that, you definitely should listen to that. And if there's a lack of time in your life, I would listen to that rather than the Stephen King cast because I, I, I guarantee you that the the Story Grid podcast is is going to help you out in your own writing for no other reason than even if you don't take the advice that that they that they discuss you're going to be immersing your brain in a lot of great conversation around writing and what to do so at the very least you'll you'll feel some motivation um, and then you'll just absorb a lot of what they're talking about so it, it's definitely something that is going to stay on your mind I strongly recommend it go out and check out the story grid podcast okay so with uh, the my my shameless plug out of the way, and with the iTunes reviews out of the way, and with the the listener email out of the way, it is now time to discuss Jonathan Madbury's The Pine Deep trilogy, beginning with his first entry in this trilogy, Ghost Road Blues. I will not be including any Wikipedia summary uh, because the, the Wikipedia summaries for this trilogy, they're atrocious. So I'm just going to start my deep dive um, on this right now. So so um, I, I just want to let you know, just from an editing standpoint, um, after I recorded the episode, so <laughs> this is kind of weird. As you're listening to this, I have already recorded the episode, and uh, I, I, I realized as I was recording it just how necessary the, the Wikipedia summary section of my reviews are. Um, so I know that just a few seconds ago I said that there will be no Wikipedia um, summary. There will be no Wikipedia summary, but I, I, I feel that after having recorded this, um, I need to provide some sort of summary. I mean, because it's important, especially for a novel like Ghost Road Blues, because so many of you listening might not have any context with this. As I was reviewing it and, and getting my recordings and my thoughts on it, I was kind of distracted because I kept thinking to myself, like, oh, God, they're not going to have any idea what I'm talking about. I'm not really going into any detail on, on who this character is. I'm just kind of assuming that you you know the backstory. Um because I, I think that at the very least, with um, 
uh, I don't know, let, let's say an analysis of, like, with Carrie, even without a, a summary, everybody knows what the story of Carrie is. Um, so I realized after recording that I was speaking about events without really having explained it first. So later in the episode, you, you might wind up hearing some redundancy and, and maybe a little repetition, but I thought it was important to provide enough context so that you understand the, the rationale behind my running commentary. Um, and I'm going to take everyone in my analysis chapter by chapter and section by section through the entirety of the novel. So I'm going to go into very very detail on how Maberry constructs these scenes and my thoughts on how he constructs each scenes and what makes each scene so enjoyable for me as a fan of Stephen King and as a fan of Halloween. But in order for you, the listener, to get the most out of it, you do need to understand what the story itself is. And so I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about well, I'm just giving you really a, a book report on on Ghost Road Blues. So what you need to understand is this, is that the, the story takes place in present day. Well, I, I guess present day circa early 2000s when the, the, the book was written. Um, takes place in a small, uh, uh, small town, a town nestled in a sea of corn in the town of Pine Deep, Pennsylvania. So right off the bat, fans of King's small town yarns set in Castle Rock, let's say, will immediately enjoy the setting because it's going to feel familiar to you. The difference here, and this is what sets Pine Deep apart and what Madbury does that sets himself apart from Stephen King, is that Castle Rock is the quintessential small town, right? And it just so happens that this is where supernatural presences oftentimes visit. Okay. However, Pine Deep is never meant to be a quintessential small town. That's the difference. Okay. Remember, guys, the reason I'm reviewing this right now, why I am recording this on October 11th and putting it out there, hopefully on October 11th, uh, it is now 9.22 p.m., um, but I do want to get this out sometime tonight. The reason I'm recording this right now, and so everyone can listen to it right now, is because Jonathan Maberry constructed a complete love letter to the Halloween season. And Pine Deep is the capital of Halloween, and that's what sets it apart from Castle Rock and other fictional small, small towns. You see, Pine Deep is considered in the in the context of this fictional world that he has created, it's considered the most haunted town in America. A slogan given to it by um, Time Magazine, I believe, due to, due to its massive tourist revenue. It's a tourist attraction for the Halloween season. Think Salem, except set in corn country. But bigger, not larger, but, but just bigger in scope. It's where famous celebrities will come to town during Halloween weekend to participate in events. And actual horror celebrities will show up in the final book as characters. Now, that might sound cheesy, but Halloween itself is cheesy, right? Just trust me, guys. When you see Ken Foray fighting zombie-like vampires, you're going to thank me. I don't mention that to, to ruin the conclusion to the series, but just to set the setting. It's a farmland with seas of corn, pumpkin fields, and farms. It's surrounded by rivers and mountains in the distance. Now keep that in mind because that will play a part. But what you need to know is that when the story starts, though it's an original story set in the present day, it's taking place in a town that has history. You see, 30 years before, and 
doesn't that already get you as a Stephen King fan? Don't you immediately think of it and the terror which occurred 30 years before or 28 years before? You see, 30 years before in this town, a series of murders took place. The work of a serial killer the press dubbed the Reaper. The police and the newspapers and history itself will go on to state that the killer was a young black man by the name of Orrin Morse. A guitar slinging, I'm sorry, a guitar slinging blues player, migrant farmhand hired due to the previous years, previous years extraordinary harvest. He was caught by the police and murdered immediately, and the town murders stopped immediately after that. But not because Orrin Morse was the killer; it was because just before he was killed by the cops, he had killed the killer himself. Except. The Reaper was not just a serial killer. The Reaper was a monster, a legitimate monster out of folklore. The Pine Deep Reaper was a werewolf, and Orrin Morse, nicknamed the Bone Man, had pieced together the truth, and having had enough of the monster ravaging the town that had taken him in, sought him out and engaged in an epic battle of good versus evil that concluded with him in, concluded with him plunging the remnants of his guitar into the beast's heart and driving the beast into the dirt. The werewolf, an immigrant farmer named Ubel Griswold, was vanquished and buried deep in the woods outside of town in a spot known as Dark Hollow under the shadow of the mountains that I had mentioned a minute ago. After the bone man pulled himself back to town, he was caught not by just the cops, but by cops who were all followers of the cult-like leader Griswold. Understanding that their leader had just been vanquished by this black man, they quickly kill him and pin the murders on him. Among the survivors of Griswold's reign of terror were the children Malcolm Crow, Terry Wolfe, and Valerie Guthrie. Each one of them suffered a personal loss. Crow's brother Billy was taken by the beast. Terry's sister Mandy was another victim, as was Val's uncle, the brother of her father Henry Guthrie, Henry Guthrie the most respected man and hard-working farmers in town. Henry had employed the bone man, who had spent countless hours strumming his guitar and singing the blues to the children. When the Bone Man was murdered, the Guthries, as well as Crow and Terry, knew immediately that he was not the killer despite what the newspapers and history said. Anyway, Crow had nearly been snatched away by Griswold as he was transforming into a werewolf, but was saved by the Bone Man in the last minute. Unfortunately, the Bone Man had not been there to save Mandy Wolf, who was grisly murdered, and he was not there to truly save Terry, who was viciously attacked. Terry wound up surviving, but was hospitalized. It appeared that the wounds would eventually heal, but it's going to turn out that though he survived, he would have been been better off if he had died all along. So, Griswold's dead, Orrin Morse is dead, everyone grows up, years pass, and the town recovers from the brutal murders. Prosperity ensues, and it capitalizes on the haunted history, creating a high-level tourist attraction. As I said earlier, there are incredibly fun events, including a Halloween night parade. Come on, guys, that's awesome. Think about the movie Trick or Treat. You know how they have the Halloween parade in there? It's very similar to that, and it's going to play an incredible part in the conclusion of this series in Bad Moon Rising. We get to see the parade and what occurs during the parade. 
And it also, uh, you know, the the events, uh, there's all these events, there's, you know, makeup events, um, there's book reading events, and there's live music, whose musicians have at times included the Smashing Pumpkins. So, I mean, we're not operating at a small town fair level, we're operating at this level, it's pretty big. So Terry survived his initial attack. He grew up and he winds up becoming the mayor of the most haunted town in America, despite the fact that he's blocked out all of the events of the horrors that have been inflicted upon him in his youth. He's very, very rich and incredibly well-liked. He manages the town with flair, style, and substance. He oversees all public relations, entrusts the day-to-day -day operations with high-functioning townspeople, and works very closely with the farmers to ensure that they continue to turn a profit. He's not just a mayor, he's a bona fide leader. He also happens to own the crown jewel of the tourist town, the Haunted Hayride, whose day-to-day -day operations are overseen by his best friend since childhood, Malcolm Crow whose brother had been murdered by Griswold. Whereas Terry turned away from all the things that go bump in the night, Crow leans into them. He's a comedic, ghoul-loving boy at heart. Not only does he oversee the haunted hayride, but he's its creative architect. And because this is the most haunted town in America, with Terry's deep pockets, he managed to create a horrific and enjoyable interactive experience, the likes of which your local haunted hayrides can't compare. Also, Crow owns and operates the Crow's Nest, a local store that specializes in Halloween. So it's a ramped up version of your party city or your Halloween spirit store that pops up around this time. Oh, and it also sells comic books and sci-fi memorabilia. Also, not only is Crow a wisecracking, Halloween-loving guy, he's also a former cop, a recovering alcoholic, and a badass black belt in karate. And he's madly in love with Val Guthrie. Val, meanwhile, still lives with her father, Henry, and helps him run the family farm. Val has a great relationship with her father, who trusts Crow with his daughter, and generally, as I said earlier, Henry is the most respected man in town. He has a son, named Mark, who is more business-minded than farm-minded, who is married to Connie, a very meek and fragile woman. That's something that you're going to need to know for later. Also in town lives 14-year-old Mike Sweeney, who was regularly beaten and abused by his stepfather, the vicious Wingate, who as a teenager was the most loyal of Ubel Griswold's followers. Since his death, Vic Wingate has been Griswold's right-hand man, enacting a decades-long plan that will culminate in something called the Red Wave this Halloween, which ultimately will take place in the final installment, Bad Moon Rising. So at this point, we only have one month to go. Vic is a mean piece of work, brutal, mean, but ruthlessly intelligent. You see, he alone understands that Griswold might have been killed 30 years before, but that doesn't mean he's dead. Instead, uh, Griswold's spirit remains alive, trapped under tons of dirt and swamp in the now poisonous Dark Hollow. And if Vic is able to pull off his plan, he will be able to help resurrect the monster who will transform from werewolf to something else. The key to enjoying this story is enjoying its roots in folklore. Maberry doesn't opt for the Hollywood versions of these creatures. Instead, he explores the much weirder variations that folklore have to offer, which differs from the European, uh, which differs from European region to European region. So, for instance, uh, it will turn out that uh, Ubel Griswold is a Serbian werewolf. Okay. Now, as a Serbian werewolf, he exists with a different set of rules than, let's say, a Germanic werewolf, and so forth. It makes things that much more confusing when our heroes begin to put the pieces together. 
and turns this story completely batshit. Because according to the folklore rules, if the werewolf is murdered, it's reborn as a vampire. Why not? Anyway, Vic draws his plans together, which includes attempting to regularly drive his stepson to suicide. What Mike doesn't understand is that he is a factor in the plans of the ghostly Ubel Griswold. What Mike doesn't know is that he's actually the son of Griswold, whose spirit had possessed a human body 14 years prior in order to create an offspring. Mike is that offspring. Mike, unbeknownst to him, is a dampier, the human child of a vampire. And continuing with the rules of folklore, if he is killed by an evil hand, his spirit will spread to every rock, blade of grass, and object throughout the town, which will poison the earth for evil spirits, including Griswold. Instead, in order for Griswold to get him out of the game, Mike will need to either commit suicide, hence the regularly brutality, the, the regular brutality at the hands of Vic, or he'll need to be killed by a clean hand. That hand, Griswold hopes, will come from the man known as Tow Truck Eddie. Tow Truck Eddie is Eddie Griswold, a religious zealot who Griswold has been conditioning for decades. He was the one who delivered the final killing blow to Orrin Morse 30 years before, and did so because he believed that Morse had killed Griswold, who Eddie believed was a God-loving, church-going man of faith. Griswold ultimately perverts Eddie's faith and whispers in his ear over the decades to the point where Eddie believes that God himself is talking to him. Griswold convinces Eddie that he must seek out the beast of the apocalypse, the Antichrist, and slay him. As a result, Eddie, who works for a tow truck company, hence the nickname, prowls the roads in his wrecker searching for the boy, ultimately in the hopes that he will be able to run over him. So those are our principal players in the game as the novel begins. Now, remember that the novel is entitled Ghost Road Blues. That's because it features the ghost of the Bone Man himself, Orrin Morse, who is, who is resurrected in spectral form by hands unseen to do the work of the light in order to help combat the forces of darkness led by the monstrous Ubel Griswold. Cold, dead, invisible, intangible, and confused, the Bone Man wanders pine deep attempting to assist our heroes with only the night birds and the crows to keep him company. Every so often, our heroes will hear the strings of a lonely guitar drifting on the night wind. That's our resident ghost. But the Bone Man isn't the only character to arrive to Pine Deep, because shortly after the novel begins, three dangerous men, wounded from a gunfight in Philadelphia over drugs and money, crash their car into a cornfield. The two men, Boyd and Tony, are led by the sadistic and truly monstrous Carl Ruger, a career criminal from Philly and a serial killer himself. He's as bad as they come, and he's arrived to Pine Deep, unknowingly drawn by Griswold himself. The state police, led by detectives Frank Farrow and Vince LaMastra, arrive to Pine Deep to inform the local authorities that notorious criminals might be hiding out in the town. Terry, not taking any chances, deputizes his best friend and most trusted confidant and former cop Malcolm Crow. 
Crow is like a gunfighter who has sworn off his own life but is reluctantly drawn back into the world. He had planned to propose to Val that night but wants to ease his best friend's mind because Terry has been stressed lately due to a blight that has been ruining the town's crops. More importantly, Terry has been suffering from awful dreams of death and destruction and has recently been visited by the ghost of his long-deceased sister, Shades of an American Werewolf in London. His sister, Mandy, tells him that she loves him and that he needs to kill himself before it's too late. Before what's too late, you wonder? Before Terry transforms into a werewolf and becomes an agent of Ubel Griswold. That's what. Yes, guys, our mayor, named Terry Wolf, is a werewolf himself. As Crow drives out to the haunted hayride to shut it down and check to make sure everyone's safe from the killers that are somewhere in town, he spots Mike Sweeney, who has nearly been killed when tow truck Eddie nearly ran him off the road. Crow takes Mike under his wing. Ha! Huh. Crow takes Mike under his wing and begins a mentor-apprentice relationship that will span the remaining two books. Ruger's henchman Tony begins to die and Ruger and his other henchman um, Boyd head off into uh, the Sea of Corn. He props Boyd against the Scarecrow and leaves him uh, to head to the closest house from the field of corn, the Guthrie's house. There is a knock on the door and Val expects it to be Crow because she's been expecting him after all, but instead it's Ruger and things get nasty. Ruger takes Val, Henry, and Connie hostage. Immediately, Connie's mind begins buckling under the strain of the violence and the implication of rape that Ruger proposes. Mark eventually returns home and Ruger gains a fourth hostage. Eventually, after taking Val and Henry into the corn to help him with Boyd, the Guthries attack. Henry dies in the effort, his dying body eased into the next life by the ghost of the man he had once treated so well in life when no one else would, and Val viciously assaults Ruger. But Ruger is a sociopath and a long-hardened fighter. He chases her through her yard, and just as he's about to get her, Crow shows up. Remember how I told you that Crow was a black belt? Well, Maberry sets that up for a reason, and we get an incredible fight sequence, which I'm going to go into in great detail later on. Um, we get an incredible fight scene between our hero and our villain. Ruger is dispatched, and Val and Crow are hospitalized. Though Ruger has been shot numerous times, he's kept alive by Griswold's dark magic and is rescued by Vic, who takes him to Dark Hollow, where he's transformed into a vampire. Ruger, now undead, attacks Val and Crow in the hospital, but still a fledgling vampire, he's not at maximum strength and is wounded by the sheer amount of bullets. He feigns his death and is locked in the morgue where he waits to be broken out. And that's pretty much the gist of the first book, guys. So, uh, with that that summary out of the way, let me talk a little bit about my experience and, and how I wound up discovering Ghost Road Blues and Jonathan Maberry's Pine Deep trilogy. I, I, I believe I began reading these books um, in the, I would say, probably the, the summer of 2007, maybe. Um... I, I had gone to, to Barnes and Noble and I was just walking around the, the aisles, walking around and just literally, you know, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but when I'm walking through a bookstore, bookstore that's exactly what I'm doing. So I, I just don't think that that phrase holds much weight anymore uh, because it's what grabs my eye. And so I'm, I'm looking around and it was one of those times, I'm glad that I spent as long as I did 
just wandering the aisles and, and really just, I wanted something new to read. I didn't want to reread a book. I wanted, I wanted to just get sucked into something new. And I was in the fiction aisle and I'm going up and down the rows and I found one paperback book had a blue cover, had a house, looked like lightning was in the background, um, and the title of the book was Dead Man's Song. And I said, ooh. So I picked it up, and I read the, the, the summary of it, and uh, it, it, it seemed interesting to me. So I brought it home. I started reading it, and I said, something doesn't seem right about this. I, I'm enjoying it, but just something doesn't seem right. I think I'm missing something. And... I'm glad that I listened to my instincts because then I went on Amazon and I typed in uh, Dead Man's Song. It turns out that Dead Man's Song by this author, Jonathan Mabry, was the second part of a proposed trilogy. And I saw that the first one was Ghost Road Blues. So I said, oh my God, this is exactly what I was looking for. And the cover to Ghost Road Blues, guys, is great. It's a, it's a man walking down uh, a, a road. There's corn on either side of the road. He's got a guitar slung around his back. There's a crow flying in the air. It's just invoking everything that I love about this time of year, Halloween. And uh, so I said, Ghost Road Blues, this is great. Um, I, I wanted to get hooked in something. I really wanted to, to just fall in love with something and and if I fall in love with this I'm going to be falling in love with a trilogy this is this is exactly what I want so I was primed I was ready this and when I needed this it came to me so I, I, I hopped back in the car, I raced down to Barnes & Noble, I saw that they had Ghost Road Blues, I picked it up, I brought it home, and I was just praying to God, and I had my fingers crossed that I was going to love this, because the, the, the promise of this was almost too good to bear. And now, thankfully, almost 10 years later, I am just so happy to report that Ghost Road Blues and then Dead Man Song and the final inclusion of the trilogy, Bad Moon Rising, was everything that I wanted this story to be and more. What I wanted was something I could fall in love with. As you know, I'm a huge fan of Stephen King and fell in love with, with his works. What I did not expect was to fall in love with what I consider to be up there with Stephen King's, the best of Stephen King. This feels like this could be inserted in the mid-80s Stephen King. Uh, this is, Stephen King has never written a, a, a true Halloween story. And ultimately, I don't need him to at this point because Jonathan Maberry beat him to the punch. Jonathan Maberry gave us the Stephen King Halloween story, and it's Ghost Road Blues, it's Dead Man's Song, it's Bad Moon Rising, it's his Pine Deep trilogy, and it's phenomenal. It's just so, so fun. Um, so I, I I had said a long time ago, way back in the, probably uh, the, the Salem's Lot review, so my it would have been my third Stephen King episode, Stephen King cast episode, I mentioned the Pine Deep trilogy, and I said that maybe one day I, I could get around to doing it. Well, that day has come, and I just can't wait to, uh, to, to really analyze it. So, you know, basically what, what is, what's so good about this is that it has everything that you want out of a, a Stephen King book. It has charismatic heroes. It has charismatic villains. It has larger-than-life 
ancient evil. It has a small town. It's and this one, it's it's set during Halloween. And you'll see as I get into my Stephen King isms, there's just a lot of aspects of Stephen King's writing and storytelling that are fully on display here with Jonathan Maberry's story. So. This is a love letter to uh, small towns, and more importantly, it is a love letter to Halloween. This is required Halloween reading, and Halloween is a season that I love. You know, everyone tends to compare Halloween and Christmas, and you know, what do you like more? What do you like better? Well, I, I love both. I, I love Christmas time, but there's something about when the, the weather turns crisp and the leaves start falling and the night starts to come a little bit earlier, and you know the, the the scary movies start playing and the the stores start advertising Halloween it's just it provides this this safe feeling of being scared and it's just it's fun it's a time when you can just celebrate the things that go bump in the night and what better way to celebrate the things that go bump in the night than by reading Pine Deep Trilogy so the prologue let's get into this let's let's talk about this so the prologue I mean it's just a fun beginning and I'm gonna read the prologue for all of you guys because this is how it starts the last thing Billy said was oh come on there's nothing out there and then two sets of bone white hands arched over the slat rails on the wagon and seized him by the shoulders and the collar and dragged him screaming into the darkness he tried to fight them but they had him and he as he rasped along the trail feet flailing and hands scrabbling for some desperate purchase other white figures closed in and he was dragged away claire screamed at the top of her lungs everyone else screamed too even the guy driving the tractor screamed this is a perfect way to start this novel it's firmly established itself in the horror genre with the cold open quick kill and immediately puts you off balance you're trying to catch up to these characters who are they what's happening However, even with this, uh, within this introductory paragraph, despite the tension, Maberry makes it clear that you're supposed to be having fun. Take a look at the end of the paragraph one more time. Claire screamed at the top of her lungs, he writes. Everyone else screamed too. Even the guy dri driving the tractor screamed. Just the fact that he's referring to the driver as the guy, it's so informal that the author is tipping his hat that you're supposed to be taking this scene with a grain of salt. The fact that this character, the guy driving the tractor, is our main character is a hoot. It's an ingenious way to kick off the story um, not only on a haunted hayride, but within the storyline reality that the haunted hayride sells you. It's a fun way to start the book, and it's a perfect mechanism to convey the spirit of Halloween and the fun, scary danger that permeates this book. If you think about it from a realist perspective, it doesn't hold up. With our society as litigious as uh, as this is, there's no way that um, operating a hayride like this uh, with this level of hands-on fright without getting slapped a lawsuit, um, it, it's a little preposterous. But in a trilogy with vampires, werewolves, ghosts, superpowered children, and zombies. I don't think that this plot point is going to break our suspension of disbelief. So what's great about this is, is that this is just one of those examples of what makes this a perfect Halloween read. Like, haunted hayrides are a staple of Halloween. And the fact that the novel begins on a haunted hayride and 
you know, he he just he injects it with even more Halloweenishness. It's just it's such I just and I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it really is just a, a perfect love letter to this time of year. And the litigiousness, I mean, this is addressed through the character of Coop. Uh, the seasoned staff member who disagrees with um, our main character's extremism. And our main character, by the name, by the way, is, is named Malcolm Crow. And Crow is responsible for this haunted hayride. And as I'll get into, um, he's a major, major part of the goings on of the, the town of Pine Deep. And right away, we get some interpersonal conflict um, with. Uh, with Terry, um, sorry, Terry Wolf's uh, name being uh, dropped, and so we have met Crow uh, and and Malcolm Crow, who is in charge of the haunted hayride and the the shop, the Crow's Nest, which is awesome. Um, we can tell already that he is this enthusiastic, very uh, Stephen King type of character, very charismatic, and he comes with a particular um, gimmick, and that is Halloween. This guy just loves Halloween. So Mabberry, the author, begins to expand Crow's world, and we're introduced via phone to Val. Now, Val uh, is Crow's, the love of Crow's life, and we can see that they have a very fun and healthy and easy banter between the two of them. And then Madberry begins to present the setting of Pine Deep. Crow got up and shoved his cell back into his pocket as he walked through the barn to the field. The staff would be herding the next group of kids into the flatbed, but Crow didn't watch them. Instead, he turned and looked east. Val's farm was that way miles and miles away across seas of waving corn and knobbed fields of pumpkins there were no lights at all in that direction and there would be no spray of stars tonight the sky was a uniform and totally featureless featureless black that stretched forever forever i'm sorry guys i just got back from work so just i'm a little shot from that um but anyway with descriptions like these you begin to get a strong sense of the geography of this town with our main character establishing himself. And the fun quality of the season is clearly on display. Mabberry begins to tease the dangers that come with the Halloween season. And he writes, He felt wonderfully happy. The hayride was a success, even if it did push the limits, a fact he'd never openly admit. And Val Guthrie was the most wonderful woman on earth. Then, without warning, he shuddered. A deep shudder that raised goose flesh along his arms and made all the hair on his scalp twitch and tingle. Somewhere beyond the veil of black nothingness, he heard the, the faintest growl of thunder. Just the hint of a coming storm. The thunder sounded a little like laughter. The deep kind, from far inside the chest. Mirthless, he shivered again. Someone walked over my grave, he said aloud. In the distance, the thunder laughed again, and there was a single flash of lightning that scratched a deep red vein in the darkness. Off to his right, he could hear the screams of the kids as they encountered monsters. At that moment, Crow didn't like the sound of it. From there, Mabberry begins to tease the backstory that feels like um, another box on the Stephen King checklist, and that's not a knock, it's actually a plus. And Mabberry lines it, nails it with the opening line. Okay, now think about this. The bone man killed the devil with a guitar. 
I mean, that's a hook right there. And it conjures Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. But how do you not want to follow up that that line by reading to see exactly what he's talking The bone man killed the devil with a guitar? The sequence, guys, this sequence, the novel transforms from spooky, fun romp to myth. An origin story telling the tale of how evil arrived at this town with larger-than-life characters embroiled in the ultimate battle of good and evil. The imagery in this scene is so rich, with wonderful descriptions of the setting sun, the mountains in the background, the pit of dark hollow, the feeling of shadows, and the rising moon. When the bone man vanquishes the devil... The grandeur flees the scene, and reality reaffirms itself. The devil is now named um, Ubel Griswold. The bone man is now named Orin Morse. Maberry doesn't spend long with Orin, but just long enough to get to know him. And you like him. So when he starts making his way to safety, after literally killing a monster, he's stopped by the police, our hearts plummet. We can see where this is going. The scene is peppered with characters that'll pop up throughout the story, or some shade, uh, or shade some texture of the characters we already know, like Crow, whose father is one of the cops and fueled with bloodlust at the death of Malcolm's older brother. More importantly, it's the introduction of two of our trilogy's biggest players on the dark side, Vic Wingate and Tow Truck Eddie. This is a brutal scene, guys, but it's structured quite well. From the antagonistic teasing from the police to the fright once they believe that he's responsible for the recent murders in town to the brutal police beatdown to the false safety that Oren feels when talking to Eddie, who turns out um, went to the same church as Griswold. It's all so layered wonderfully, each page growing worse and worse and worse. So there's our origin for what we're going to be getting getting um in this trilogy and this sequence takes place in the past years and years before and one thing that i did not reference here but Oren morse the man who killed the devil known as ubel griswold um he's a black man and there's definitely a lot of racism on display here and that is going to be peppered throughout uh these these three novels and so i had mentioned a couple characters here vic wingate and tow truck eddie um, after this flashback is concluded, we meet um, in the present Tow Truck Eddie. Not only do we meet him, but Maberry does a great job at introducing him and his religious zealotry, his brute force. With one punch, he is able to murder Orin, and this is described in brutal, brutal detail. So that was just the prologue. Um, what we get now is part one, Crossroads. Chapter one, modern day. With the flashback behind us, we check back in with Crow, who we had just seen as a young boy at the Bone Man's secret funeral. Now, in this scene, Maberry clearly demonstrates his adoration for Val, which is great. But with this being her first real introduction, I guess I don't need to know how she shaves her pubic area. I get they're in love, but Crow just kind of comes across as an ogling, leering creep. And I get it. He's taking her in. He's admiring her. Understood. I don't think that the scene is gratuitous or shouldn't be there. It just probably not shouldn't be there as our introduction to Val, who will go on to demonstrate herself to be a rich and incredibly strong female character. However, she's introduced to us in the most superficial way possible. Wonderfully described, 
but superficial nevertheless. However, with that said, the objectification of the character serves to highlight a self-conscious side of her in which Maberry reveals that she's the recipient of many scars. So the scene does work, reveals aspects of her character, shows their playful relationship. One by one, Maberry describes the characters, first Val, then Crow, followed by Val's father, Henry, the kindly old farmer, and Val's brother, Mark. It's a necessary scene in order to develop the happiness that's going to be shattered later in this story. Up next, we meet the appropriately named Terry Wolf, who is having terrible nightmares and suicidal urges. It's an effective mystery. What is wrong with Terry, and how will this play into the larger story? The next important character to meet is Mike Sweeney, brought to us through the imagination of a 14-year-old where he is Iron Mike Sweeney, the hero of a crazy sci-fi fantasy mashup. The dream is contrasted against the bleak reality of life with Vic Wingate, the murderous cop from the Bone Man segment. It's always fun to see where these characters will head, and it's even more fun to know that his dreams, in which he is a supernatural warrior against the forces of evil, will eventually become more than just dreams. From there, we catch back up with Tow Truck Eddie, who functions in this novel not unlike the religious zealots that have populated King's works throughout his career. When last we saw Eddie, he was the quiet giant cop who first offered salvation towards the Bone Man before providing a fatal blow and allowing the other police to finish the job. Not only does Eddie believe in God and talk to God, but God speaks to him. Of course, it will turn out that his God is the devil himself, the monster known as Griswold, who is speaking to him from the muddy grave the Bone Man had buried him in 30 years before. It's a companion scene to Mike's introduction, and the first of the novel's conflicts becomes abundantly clear. That being that Eddie refers to that that the being that Eddie refers to as God is commanding him to kill Mike. This is a David and Goliath scenario, as Eddie is presented as a bodybuilding giant. The fact that he was introduced through physicality and brutality highlights that danger, and knowing that Mike already suffers at the hands of one abuser, to think that he'll now have to deal with this monstrous psychopath is disheartening. Chapter 2. Here we go. Here's our A-plot. That year, the monsters came to town a whole month before Halloween. And this is what Madberry writes, I'm sorry. So that year, the monsters came to town a whole month before Halloween. The monsters didn't wear costumes. No Shreks or Jedi Knights. No Harry Potters or Orc Warriors. No Aragorns or Captain Jack Sparrows. These monsters weren't white-sheeted ghosts peering hopefully out of eye holes cut in old parkal. They weren't hockey-masked slaughterers of young virgins. They weren't four-foot-high tottering Frankensteins with Kmart plastic faces. They didn't caper from house to house with pumpkin-headed flashlights or ghostly green glow sticks. None of them carried paper sacks filled with ghoulish gatherings of Snickers bars, sandwich bags full of pennies, apples, and snack-sized three musketeers. They were monsters, all the same. They blew into town on a Halloween wind, coming into Pine Deep along the black length of extension route A32, whisking over black mark black marsh bridge and through the cornfields they came in a black car that had blood stains on door handles and the single unblinking black eye of a bullet hole on the driver's door the monsters came rushing into town like a storm wind pushing cold air before them and dragging darkness behind 
there were three monsters in the car. Two of them sat in the front, the third crouched in the back. They all had their monster faces hunched low into the collars of their coats, hidden by the shadows of their hat brims. They were silently snarling, these three monsters. The monster in the back seat bared his teeth in desperation and fear. The monster behind the wheel bared his teeth in pain and hopelessness. But the monster in the front passenger seat bared his teeth in a grin of pernicious delight. The black car with the raven's speed along the dark road, but it did not fly with the raven's precision. It veered and it swayed and swaggered, staggered from one side of the road to the other, as if the monster who drove it did not know how to control the machine. Yet it continued to drive fast for all of its careening and swerving. In it, the three silent, hungry monsters rolled into Pine Deep as night closed around the town like a fist. But there were other monsters in Pine Deep that night. It was that kind of town. These others did not need to come to town in a blood-stained black car. They were already there, had always been there. One drove through town every day in his own machine, a monstrous wrecker with a gleaming hook. Another one labored all day repairing expensive cars and trucks, and labored at night to destroy precious hearts and souls. One walked around town and smiled at everyone, and he never knew that a monster looked out of his laughing blue eyes, waiting, waiting. One monster, the worst of all, waited in darkness under wormy dirt, awake now after a long, long sleep. There were many other monsters in Pine Deep, waiting, all of them waiting. And that is how you do it, guys. That's how you introduce your villain, not Griswold, but Carl Ruger, the criminal. And what a character. Danger just radiates off the page when, whenever Carl Ruger shows up on that page. Um, and this, to me, is very reminiscent of the opening of A History of Violence, for those of you who haven't seen it. Um, and I, I just can't help but think of that, that, that very similar um, alpha predator, um, remorseless killer uh, that we saw in the beginning of, of that movie. What makes the book work as well as it does is the strength of Madbury's ability to craft the setting. We learn that the Black Harvest had set, up, had set upon the farmlands, rendering the pumpkins worthless. And from a tonal perspective, it establishes the omen of dark days ahead. And you get passages like these. The ugly pumpkins squatted in row after hideous row or stood in huge mounds like heads piled high after a great battle. The night bird circled the biggest mound once, twice, and then veered off again, rediscovering the black road and following it up and over a series of small hills. More cornfields stretched away on either side of the road, and here and there darkened farmhouses began the ritual of turning on lights to combat the invasion of night shadows. The lights did not make the houses look safe and homey. They made them seem impossibly lonely, as if each house was the only house in the whole world, alone and lost in the eternal sea of dryly whispering corn. God. God. And then we get an incredible section in which we meet the ghost of Orin Morse, emerging from the darkness of his grave in the shadows of a lonely old farmhouse. I'd read it, 
but it's long and you should appreciate the experience yourself. It's an interesting choice to have the ghost function as the point of view. Through his eyes, we watch Karl Ruger come barreling into the town. Usually the ghost is observed by the characters, not the other way around. And this helps establish the kindness of the ghost and the danger of men. So let's talk about these men. We have Tony, Boyd, and Ruger. Injuries on the run. Now let's look closely at Ruger with a great description and a little familiar. Ruger's eyes were cold slits, but he was smiling. The smile and the eyes seemed as if they belonged in two different faces. The smile seemed warm and pleasant and affable, but above the smile, Ruger looked at Tony with the expressionless eyes of a reptile. Eyes the color of dusty slate, like a blackboard from which all the writing had been forcefully erased. Ruger had a long, thin nose that arced over the mouth like the blade of a very sharp knife, a pointed chin, and a sharp, strong jawline. His cheekbones hung like ledges over the concavity of hollow cheeks, and Ruger's brow was high and clear, but cut by the black dagger point of a widow's peak. He took off his hat and smoothed his greased flat hair against his skull. If he had a kinder face, he could have looked like a stage magician, but he did have the air of magic about him, but it was dark magic, and it clung to his soul and to his face and to his fate. The dark magic was there in his long white fingers and in the shadows of his black, black heart. Maberry does a fantastic job at introducing the three murderers. Though all three are hardened criminals, Maberry makes it clear that Karl Ruger is a straight-up villain, the kind you can sink your teeth into, and knowing that he's now in Pine Deep adds a wild card factor to the story. In a novel that has included werewolves and vampires, ghosts and dark lords that whisper to their followers to kill young children, what role will this psychopath play? And one thing that I haven't made clear yet is the town itself. So this is nestled in Pennsylvania, um, in, in farm country, in corn country, but the thing that sets Pine Deep, and I really should have said this at the very, very top, but the thing that sets Pine Deep apart from Castle Rock or Jerusalem's Lot or um, any, any small town that you get in, in, in fiction is that this is a town that comes with a theme. This is considered the most haunted town in America, and it's a tourist attraction specifically for the Halloween season. So think Salem, except in Pennsylvania, um, and it is all done up for Halloween. So for fans of Halloween, you're going to get a lot out of spending time in this particular town. Chapter 3, Vic Wingate, folks. We have seen this type of character before in Stephen King books. Falling asleep drunk in front of the television, he's reminiscent of Joe Camber and Hugh Priest. It's nice to have these King archetypes throughout the novel. It makes for a comfortable read. We even get the Stephen King dream sequence. We see Vic talking to the swampy grave of Ubel Griswold, so now we know that he's one of the creature's lieutenants. Much in the way that Randall Flagg had Trash and Lloyd, or Leland Gaunt had Buster and Ace Merrill, here we have an evil entity turning others towards his cause, including Vic Wingate, Tow Truck Eddie, and most dangerous of them all, Carl Ruger. Griswold's constant repetition of Ruger, you are my left hand, is something we could all definitely hear Flagg whisper to one of his cronies. 
Chapter 4 The disembodied spirit of Griswold stands in the road where Ruger has crashed his car and is joined by the ghost of the bone man. Griswold talks trash to the poor ghost and speaks of the deaths to come. This is not a book that's wasting any time. With our villains clearly established, Mabberry switches gears and refocuses on our good guys, Crow and Terry, our mayor. I'm going to say this now and get it out of the way, but one fault of these three books is that, to me, Terry Wolf never feels as strong as a character as he's presented. It'll be interesting for me as I reread this, this series, but I distinctly remember that I felt that I didn't really know Terry Wolf. I'm going to get into Terry later on, but I'll leave you with the fact that I always felt left feeling that he was an unintentionally unfinished character. Terry receives word from above that three gunmen have gone missing somewhere in Pine Deep, and Crow's smile and his natural instinctive urge to remain cool is a great character beat. His comedic nature is quickly juxtaposed um, until this point uh, against... I'm sorry, his comedic nature is quickly juxtaposed against the until this point hidden heroic qualities within the character as Terry asks him to load up and prepare for the worst. We learn that Crow used to be a cop, so now we realize that this Joker character is much more than he immediately seemed. The twin sons of comedy and heroism brightly shine in the closing to this section. Terry Wolf shook his head, but then stepped forward and thrust out his hand. Thanks. Crow picked up a rubber severed arm and extended it to shake Terry's hand. Terry batted it lightly aside and shook his head again, sadly this time. You are very weird, he said with a harried grin, and then left. For a full minute, Crow just looked out through the broad glass window at the darkness, a lopsided smile on his face. He scratched his cheek with the rubber hand. Well, well, he said aloud, and then went back to the room and fetched his gun. So... Here we go. We have Terry Wolf and Malcolm Crow. I'm telling you guys, like little things like that just go a long way at tickling my Halloween spirit. Um, so as I said earlier, uh, uh, Crow runs the Crow's Nest, which is just, it's a collectible store. And around you can go and get your comics there. You can get a lot of sci-fi stuff there. But um, around this time of year, the Crow's Nest becomes your all-out Halloween party store so that's why he has um, his rubber hand so I'll definitely get into Terry and I'll definitely get into Crow in a lot more detail so the villains that Terry had referenced are here shown fighting among themselves or rather they're whittled down from three to two as Ruger puts Tony out of his misery and then the remaining duo head deeper into the corn wonderful imagery and knowing they're out in the corn is like swimming in the water knowing that sharks lurk somewhere below just out of sight chapter five Mabberry understands stakes and no not the kind you need to kill vampires with the stakes that you need to tell a story he's laid down the history of the town which includes corrupt cops a string of murders a supernatural creature and the ghost of the man framed for its killing spree we have two criminals on the loose, one of whom is clearly psychotic and is poised to be a major player in the events to come. We have a mayor who is tied to the strange past of the town and is starting to lose his mind. And with Crow, not only do we have a former cop turned Halloween themed store owner and hayride operator, we have a man deeply in love planning to propose to his longtime girlfriend later that night. 
The fact that everything has the glimmer of a fixed endpoint allows both the characters and the reader to head towards a prediction like a ship heading towards a beacon from the shoreline. What we don't know is how rough the waves will be, or whether or not the lighthouse will lead us to safety, or if it's a trap to lure us towards the jagged rocks. We check back in with Terry, who heads home and is followed by a strange presence. So far, we've had Ghost 1, Orin Morse. We've had Ghost 2, Ubel Griswold. Now we have Ghost 3, Mandy Wolf. Terry meets the boys from the outside, State Police Pharaoh and Lamastra, who step into this horror novel almost like they've come from crime fiction. Their names are so invocative of that type of genre that it feels like a special crossover event of characters I've never met before, but feel like I've known forever. One thing that Mayberry does, maybe not so subtly, is straight up tell you who these characters would play in the movie versions. He'll later reveal that Crow should be played by Greg Kinnear, that Pharaoh would be played by Morgan Freeman, and LaMastra as Howie Long. However, as soon as he gave us Morgan Freeman as one half of a crime-fighting duo, it's hard not to cast that other half of the partnership as um, Brad Pitt from the movie Seven. The Stadies brief Terry and the local police and give them and us the dangerous significance of Carl Ruger being on the loose. Again, the stakes are raised. This isn't just a criminal, and he's not an unknown criminal. He's a career criminal so dangerous that his exploits are known to the everyman. And his role as the boogeyman gets beefed up as well. Val has begun to dream of him, a pale man with dark hair chasing her through the farmhouse and the corn. Now, look, you hear that and immediately cry ripoff. I can't argue that this doesn't seem to be Randall Flagg fan fiction. But Ruger is strong enough of a character through and through, and the setting does take place within the Pennsylvania core fields, so it does make sense to use the imagery to his advantage, but there's no denying that it certainly invokes King's use of Randall Flagg. Chapter 6 So it turns out that Tony isn't dead yet. It gives us the, it gives us the great image of him slapping $20 bills to his bullet wounds to stop the bleeding. Meanwhile, Maberry shows us Terry's leadership and assertive nature when he shuts down Detective Pharaoh as Pharaoh was monologuing about the ins and outs of filthy criminality. Tony is first beset upon by tow truck Eddie, and then Boyd breaks his leg and is left alone while Ruger goes in search of a found goes in search of a farmhouse. Iron Mike, racing home to avoid a beating from his abusive stepfather, Vic Wingate, then gets run off the road in a harrowing sequence full of suspense, dread, and breathtaking realism as an effective way to build even more sympathy for Mike, who not only has to endure nightly beatings from Vic, but now has to endure almost being murdered by an insane tow truck driver. We then check back in with the Bone Man. The scene does not present any information that we didn't already know. It doesn't propel the plot. It does give us a little bit more insight in Orin's state of existence, but all in all, these things don't matter. What matters is that this scene works. It's full of incredible imagery that places us in Dark Hollow, in the cold skin of the dead man who sits by a campfire and plays the blues while thunder rumbles and lightning flashes overhead. Chapter 7 Mike's transformation has begun. 
The attempted murder at the wheel of tow truck Eddie's truck and a broken rib has begun to toughen him up and fill him with anger. He begins to exhibit the characteristics of the Iron Mike fantasy that he's been imagining since the beginning of the novel. And that includes strength and heroism, which is demonstrated when he passes the crash site of Ruger's getaway car. Just as he's about to investigate the site in order to potentially save the victim of an automobile accident because he doesn't know that they're criminals, he is stopped by a bolt of lightning that manifests itself as a glowing buck. The buck, the reader should be able to deduce, is the bone man. Even if you aren't able to figure that out, the buck is definitely a figure of good to combat the evil that lurks within the corn. It's clearly looking out for Mike. The fact that it is the Bone Man raises the question as to why he even bothers transforming into the animal. I understand that he can't talk in ghost form, but he can't talk in deer form either. So why can't he just show up as a ghost? If a creepy man all of a sudden appeared on the side of the road standing between you and a car crash, would you want to continue to explore, or would you ride away as far as possible? It's one of those things where the genre convention allows for spirit animals and avatars of good to fight the growing darkness. It makes sense in that regard, it just doesn't really hold up under scrutiny, and the Bone Man himself will actually, uh, you know, uh, give himself a hard time for manifesting himself as a buck later on because we start to learn that the Bone Man really comes with limited amount of energy and he used up a good portion of that energy right then and there. Along with spirit animals, another genre staple is the fan-favorite kingism, the prophetic dream. This now marks the third character to dream about events yet to come, with this one being the most specific. It foreshadows the following points. Pharaoh and Lamastra will join forces with the good guys and possibly die as a result. 2. Crow will yield a flamethrower flame at some point. 3. Pine Deep will burn. 4. Uh, Mike's mother will turn to a vampire. Five, a monster is coming for him. That monster, Ubel Griswold, continues making his presence known in the story, this time by possessing the body of a scarecrow hovering over an injured Boyd. Knowing that we can add a moving scarecrow topped with a jack-o'-lantern head under the moonlight gives it even more of a Halloween touch. Chapter 8. Again, just another touch that Mabberry adds in order to make the story pop is Missy. Crow isn't just a protagonist. He's a black belt ex-cop comedian novelty shop owner with an apartment above his shop, and he doesn't just own a car, he owns a car named Missy. Just like Mike isn't just a kid. He has an abusive stepfather and spends his time living out his life in a fantasy world in which he exists as a superhero named Iron Mike. Crow's best friend isn't just a regular guy. He's a land-owning mayor who happens to be a werewolf, soon to be haunted by his dead sister. You see, you could populate the book with stock characters, or you could do what Mabberry does and spicing them up so that on every page they pop with some neat little detail or conflict. The reason I bring Missy up is that Crow nearly runs Mike over. But in the hands of Mabberry, Missy almost runs Mike over. Like I said, it's just an extra touch. More importantly, two of the heroes just got together as the storm begins to build around them. Meanwhile, we check in with more of our heroes, the Guthrie family, as we get some interfamily dynamics of the mother's passing, the father's bad dietary habits, and the character traits of Val's sister-in-law described to us as a kitchen girl. Val expresses, expresses her dislike of Terry, so we get a little bit of backstory there, but all of this is simply set up to establish normalcy, to create a familiar sense of family diners 
one that you can relate to before the chapters end. Basically, it's the equivalent of building up a house of cards before blowing it down, because the novel kicks into the second act when a visitor knocks on the Guthrie front door, that visitor, of course, being Carl Ruger. Part 2, Mr. Devil Blues, Chapter 9. We get a little bit more insight into Tow Truck Eddie, an obsessive, OCD-plagued servant of Griswold. And yikes, we see just how far off the deep end, he, deep end we, he is when we flash back to when he encounters Tony in the cornfield. He's convinced that he should bathe in the man's blood, so naturally he begins pulling out his guts. We've already established Ruger as a dangerous, dangerous threat, but Tow Truck Eddie is an extreme wild card. As we know from reading Stephen King, the religious zealot is always the most dangerous, and with Eddie, we have Arnold Schwarzenegger believing he's personally communicating with Jesus. Crow continues to show why he's the star of the book as he cunningly convinces Terry to personally contact Vic Wingate in order to establish a lie that the cops will need the injured Mike Sweeney as a material witness in the attempted murder case in the hopes that invoking the police will be enough to back Vic off from slapping Mike around. Maberry continues to plant the seeds as he goes, establishing something about Mike bothers Terry. It's such a small little detail, but it's going to be one of the biggest reveals of the trilogy down the line. The chapter concludes with the, Gustry, with the Guthries, held hostage by Ruger, and all of the concern that you might have had for them is validated here as he is firmly in control of the situation. And not only does Maberry make them vulnerable, but he has created three hostages so different from one another that the possibilities as what could happen next begin to expand. If there was only one hostage, there's only so much you can do with the scene. You have your captor and you have your captive. Yeah, you can wring out the tension, but the outcome of the scenario will be limited. If you have two hostages, then the tension begins to grow. Will they work together? Will they be split apart? Will they be used against one another? All of a sudden, there's more possibilities. If you have three captives, it's even better, especially in this case. You have Val, who is strong, tough through and through. You have her father, who is tough, but vulnerable due to his age and his concern for his daughter and his daughter-in-law. And then you have Connie, the meek and timid housewife, whose mind is not built to comprehend the evil that has entered this house. All of a sudden, we understand that she is the weak link here, and right away, she gives up Crow's existence, who could have functioned as an unexpected white knight who might have saved the day. However, now that Ruger knows that he exists, putting Crow and the others at a disadvantage, with a slumbering monster, a couple of ghosts roving around, a latent werewolf mayor, a boy living in his imagination, a bodybuilding religious zealot, this is now the most interesting subplot of the book and that is saying something chapter 10 you can tell that Maberry loves writing tow truck eddie he's riding high on the recent murder and Maberry gives us a very exploitative scene of the man's body through the narcissistic eyes of eddie himself who wishes he could clone himself so he could make love to his own body now that is one screwed up detail with one of Griswold's goons becoming more and more of a human monster, we turn our attention to his other goon, Vic Wingate, 
who hates Mike so much he's put razor blades in the bathroom in the hopes that Mike would slit his own wrists. And without getting into the specifics, we realize that Vic is only in the picture because of Mike, because he has to, in a sense, watch out for Mike on orders from Griswold. So on one hand, Griswold has conditioned Eddie to become a twisted, God-driven man in order to kill Mike, but on the other hand, Vic can only try and get Mike to kill himself because he's too vile to get the job done himself. Why? Magic rules. That's why. He will spend a lot of time explaining what those rules are, and basically, for reasons I'll get into later, Ubel Griswold, or the ghost of Ubel Griswold, wants Mike to die. He needs Mike to die in order for him to enact his plan, but he can't have Mike just um, be murdered by an unclean hand. So Vic Wingate will do anything for Ubel Griswold, but because Vic Wingate is not a clean hand. He's a vile man. He can't kill Mike because if Mike dies at his hands, then it's going to make things worse for Ubel Griswold. So that is why he is conditioning tow truck Eddie because Eddie, if he kills Mike, um, he believes that he is working on the word of God and that is a good thing. So you see what, what he's trying to do here and it's this long con that he's playing and it's creating just such tension in this book. Chapter 11. Despite the grave proceedings he's, he's laying down, Madbury still allows us to chuckle. Here he gives us everyone's mutual disdain for Ginny, the dispatcher, who rubs everyone the wrong way. However, Madbury does give us a continuity error here, as the characters... Um, as the characters... Um, I, I'm sorry, my notes are kind of screwed up. As the characters Crow's reinstatement as a police officer and Terry exclaims to Gus that Crow had quit drinking before he had ever become a cop, which flies in the face of what we already learned about Crow, who had been drinking while on the job. So, um, it, yeah, that is a continuity error um, because, yes, he had been drinking on the job and that's one of his most rock-bottom moments. But whatever. The police team tries to determine how they're going to find Ruger. And as for Ruger, we check back in with him at the Guthrie farm. And the chapter ends with Ruger firing two shots through the door with the fear that it's Crow. It's not. As chapter 12 reveals, it's just Mark who adds a fourth side to proceedings. And the ensuing conversation reveals that Val is smart enough, or perceptive rather, enough to notice that Ruger seems distracted as if he's listening to someone. That someone, of course, is Ubel Griswold. Just so you know, in the course of the recording, I just took a quick break, got a drink of water, and fed the dogs. The dogs are now back with me, so if you hear extra noise in the background, snorting and snuffing and uh, grunting and uh, just random pig noises, that, that's, that's because my dogs have now joined us for the recording. So chapter 13. The police discover the getaway car and the remains of Tony, while Terry gets a phone call from his dead sister on a phone that has long since been disconnected. Things heat up at the Guthrie farm as they head into the corn to fetch Boyd and Ruger ponders the rape of Val and Connie. Things don't get much better as Boyd and the money appear to be gone. Ruger does not take that well. It's a very tense scene in which Ruger finds himself distracted by his rage, and while the lightning strikes overhead, Guthrie pushes his daughter out of the way and orders her to run. Both Guthries take off as Ruger aims his gun at the back of the father and pulls the trigger. 
Maberry is a master at building towards a climax. He's creating micro cliffhangers that allow the reader to swing from scene to scene like Tarzan on the vines. Chapter 14. Terry, Lamastra, and Pharaoh arrive at the site of the getaway car to find the gruesome remains of Tony, Maberry's way of escalating the tension and raising the stakes for Terry, whose fears are now coming true. N not only does this verify that the robbers are now in his town, but the violence that they have been defined by has followed them as well. That's the thing about these sleep little towns. They always get woken up violently. Speaking of violence... That's what happens when Vic arrives at the haunted hayride to pick up Mike. Crow had hoped that Terry's phone call would curb the domestic abuse, but it only seemed to ramp it up because when Vic steps out of his car, he punches Mike straight in the guts, broken rib and all. Meanwhile, as abuse occurs, Mabry gives us a wonderfully detailed description of the hayride as Crow makes his way through it to make sure that everyone has cleared out. For anyone that's ever attended a haunted hayride, descriptions like this should put a smile on your face. During this description, I think that we can parse out a bit of the writing process, as Mabberry details one section of the hayride, the one that opened up the book, with the zombies coming after the tractor when it's stuck in the mud. Mabberry writes this section as if we don't know what had occurred earlier, and to me, it seems as though he took this description and in a revision, decided to expand upon it in a show-don't-tell moment and forgot to eliminate this now redundant passage. Chapter 15. Here we get an absolutely brutal beating at the hands of Vic. It's nightmarish in its cruelty, and it's so violent that Mike temporarily leaves his body. During the out-of-body experience, he learns that the worst is currently happening, and that it can only get better from here. The mythologized monster that Vic had become suddenly becomes just a man that can get older, weaker, and more tired. Endurance is one of humanity's greatest strengths, and Maberry captures it perfectly in this scene. Vic was 47 years old. Vic was middle-aged. No matter how strong he was, no matter how much he worked out, he was middle-aged, and every day forward would take him a day further from his youth and peak strength. Mike was 14. In 10 years, Mike would be 24, and Vic would be 57. Unless Vic actually killed Mike, and even Mike did not believe that Vic would go that far, then one day Mike would be a fully grown adult man, and Vic would be old. All Mike had to do was endure. Vic was human. Mike felt pain. Instant and overwhelming, it was everywhere in his body. And in that flash of awareness, he realized that he was back in his body. He was no longer a hovering spirit, no longer detached from the bruised flesh and violated nerve endings, no longer a bystander witnessing horror, but the subject of it. His mouth and nose were bleeding. One eye was puffed nearly shut. The other peered through a red haze of blood. Mike's broken ribs were worse now, and every muscle felt mashed and ruined. He tasted blood on his thick tongue. Vic stood above him, impossibly tall and powerful. His arms knotted with muscle, his hands clenched in fists. Gasping for air from his exertions, he stared down at Mike, a smile of triumph half-formed on his mouth, but only half-formed. Above the crooked smile, Vic's eyes were slowly clouding with doubt, and double vertical lines deeply deepened between his brows. You had enough, you little shit? On the floor, Mike lay like a smashed bug, his limbs sprawled, his skin bloody and bruised, his face a ruin. 
The pain was everywhere, in every cell of his body, and Vic was there, ready to give him more of it. And Mike Sweeney did not care. He lifted his battered head, opened his puffed eyes, parted his split lips, and smiled up at Vic. There must have been something in that smile beyond Mike's joy in knowing that he could outlast this man, that he had taken the worst beating of his life and endured it. There must have been something there flickering in his bloodshot eyes or trembling in his mashed lips that Vic read differently or read wrong or read correctly because he took a single involuntary step backward and Mike saw something in Vic's face that he had never expected to see. Something he didn't believe he could see in Vic's face. He saw a flicker of fear. Not much, just a touch, but it was there. Vic was human after all. Vic was a human being. And Mike, well, Mike would endure him. And Iron Mike Sweeney, the enemy of evil, would outlast him. You see, guys? Jonathan Madbury's got the goods. Back in the cornfields, things start to get super tense. We're more than halfway through, and as Crow heads to the Guthries, Val heads into the corn. In a flash of lightning, she's visited by the ghost of Orin Morse, who tells her that she needs to go back. Chapter 16. Everything is beginning to converge on the Guthrie house. Crow races towards the house, knowing that something is wrong. Terry realizes that it's the only place Ruger could have gone. In the midst of the corn in the storm, Val finds her father, suffering from a gunshot wound, and things aren't looking good. For everyone that loved the strength of Franny from the stand when it came to her relationship with her father, you're going to love this scene as she attempts to drag him back to the farm. With half a mile to go, she realizes the impossibility of the task, and she's overcome with ferocious hate. So when she takes off to the house, it flips from a home invasion story to a revenge story, and all of a sudden, Ruger is the potential victim. Back in the home, things are escalating as Mark realizes he's about to be forced to watch Ruger rape his wife. It's a very effective scene. He's tied up, helplessly... Um, helpless physically and helpless in his own scene. It's told through his perspective. I immediately question the choice of presenting the threat of rape through his perspective and not Connie's because after all, the horror would be visited on her, not her husband. Yeah, it's emasculating and yes, it would be a truly horrific thing to have to watch, but it's not as horrific as it being done to you. But I think the fact that he's helpless and bound as a character and, as a point of view, validates this choice. However, the threat of rape never manifests itself into actual rape because Connie is saved in the last minute, not by the police, not by Crow, but by the true MVP of the novel. Mark screamed throughout. Roger laughed out loud. I'm sorry, Ruger laughed out loud as he stood over her, slowly unbuckling his belt, blowing kisses at Connie, dragging it out. There was no warning at all when the thunderbolt slammed into him. One moment Ruger was reaching for the metal tab of his fly, and the next he was bowled off his feet, driven away from Connie, driven into the backrest of the couch by something that screamed in a continuous high-pitched wail of inhuman fury. The knife went flying out of his hand, vanishing behind an overstuffed chair. He almost fell, but his, he his knees hit the seat, and it doubled him over. 
He collapsed awkwardly onto the couch, still bearing the weight of whatever had struck him. Most men would have sat there, stupid and dazed, shaking their heads disoriented. But Karl Ruger was not so vulnerable a creature. Hissing like a cat, he turned, lashing out with his elbow even before he could see his attacker. As the elbow struck, there was a howl of agony, and Val Guthrie toppled away, clawing at her left arm. Ruger's elbow had slammed into the already sprained tendons and muscles with terrible force. He snarled and reached down and grabbed her by the hair, hauling her to her feet. He cuffed her across the face, bruising the spot he'd struck earlier. Val was far beyond the reach of that kind of pain. She lashed out with her foot, aiming for his groin, but Ruger turned and took it on the hip. Still, the kick had enough desperate force to stagger him. He lost his grip on her, backpedaled a step, and came within reach of Mark, who lashed out with his bound feet and knocked Ruger sprawling. How awesome is Val? Not only does she save her sister-in-law and her brother in this scene, but she also leads Ruger back into the storm. Keep in mind she's literally beating him with one arm, and Madbury continues to escalate this scene. Leaping off the porch, cradling her arm as best she could, Val ran straight up the road, through the thunder and the rain. She couldn't hear how close he was. She ran. Twice, he almost caught her. Twice, she faked and darted and changed directions, drawing away from him while he was skidding in the mud. He howled. Val ran back towards the house, dodged around a tree, past a parked tractor, then along the side of the house toward the backyard where her father's Bronco was parked. There was a shovel in the back, if she could get to it. She screamed when she felt the tips of, Ring of Ruger's fingers scrabble at her hair. Dodging, darting left and then right, she rounded the corner of the house and burst in the backyard. Bright lights dazzled her, stopping her in her tracks with the power of a force field. She slipped and fell. Ruger caught her by the hair, even as he skidded to a halt, startled by the intense brightness of the headlights of Crow's car. Oh, snap! Things are getting good! This is so exciting. Because, guys, not only does Madberry do horror well, not only does he do uh, character work really, really well, but suspense. Um, he's a master at suspense and action. Like, his action scenes, guys, are phenomenal. And we're about to get that here. Here we go. The confrontation that we knew was bound to happen, and it does not disappoint. Ruger immediately realizes that Crow is not a pushover, and when he can't bully his way out of it, he shoves Val towards Crow in an attempt to disarm him. So, like I said, here's the deal with Matt Berry. The man has proven that he is great at establishing setting, okay, and I've given you a couple examples of that. He can build a great character. He gives us gooey horror. He's really good at building an ominous and spooky tone. But I guess his, his probably his greatest secret weapon is that he can write an action scene like nobody's business. Ruger was on him, he writes, with all of his terrible force and speed and rage bursting forth. He trampled Val as he leaped at Crow, fists swinging. Ruger knew he had no time or chance to wrestle the gun out of this man's hand, so he swatted it away, sending it sailing and over and over, end over end into rain and muddy darkness. It struck the side of the car with a muffled metallic clunk, 
His forward rush sent Crow tumbling backward, and Ruger rode him down like a surfer setting for a wave. Crow landed on his back and slid, but, and before the slide had spent itself, Ruger was smashing him with rock-hard fists. Carl Ruger had only lost one fight in his life. He had been 11 at the time, and a 16-year-old kid had plain whipped the tar and tears out of him. The teenager had beat him so bad that young Ruger had lain in the street crying, peeing in his pants, trying to stanch out the bright red blood that blossomed from his nose. The older kid had laughed at him and kicked him when he was down, and other kids, most of them older, but some of them his own friends, had watched and laughed. That was the only fight Ruger had ever lost. A week later, he pushed the 16-year-old under the iron wheels of the elevated train, watching with bruised eyes as the bully's body was torn and reduced to red rags. Since then, no one had ever beaten Ruger. No one had ever even stood up to him for a very long it was the ferocity of his attack. He went into a fight at full speed, not building to it like most people do. Every blow was backed with deep knowledge of how to hit and where, and how to hit hard and fast and often. He learned that in South Philly bars, in a dozen jails, in back alleys, and in a score of fights he himself had started just to test himself to learn how good he was. It mattered to him that he was good enough to survive anything that came down the pike. Anything. If a person stood up to him, no matter how tough, how big, how well-armed, Ruger took him down, all the way down, down to blood and death and closed coffins. He went after Crow like that, and tonight he had all of his frustrations and disappointments boiling inside him, putting more steel in his fists, stoking the fires of his rage. Crow toppled under him, and Ruger straddled his waist, locking his legs around Crow's hips for balance, and began the work of beating this man to death. Blood burst from Crow's eyebrow and nose, and his cheek ruptured and tore, and the fists never stopped. They kept hitting and hitting. This is important. We've seen Ruger as a threat, but now that our hero is in danger, it's important to see how much of a threat Ruger really is. And in this short scene, his credibility as a physical threat is clearly established. That's what makes what happened next that much more satisfying. Then suddenly, Ruger was falling. Crow had brought his knees up, planting his shoes flat on the muddy ground, and then with all of his strength and speed, had arched his back and twisted. Ruger was lifted like a rodeo rider on a bucking bull, and as Crow twisted, Ruger's weight pitched him sideways. As they fell, Crow balled up his right fist so that the secondary knuckle of his forefinger protruded, and as they landed, he punched Ruger once, twice, very hard in the very top of his thigh. The pain was so intense that it made Ruger howl. Snarling in pain and surprise, Ruger kicked himself free and rolled cat-like to his feet, and Crow came up off the ground at him. Crow faked high with both hands as if to tackle Ruger around the middle and then dropped suddenly to one knee and hooked a sharp uppercut into the tender flesh on the inside of Ruger's thigh, missing his groin by half an inch. Ruger's leg buckled and twisted and he went back down. Crow leaped at him, but Ruger kicked out as he fell and the thick heel of his boot caught Crow in the chest and using his leg like a strut, he threw Crow over his head. Crow tucked and rolled and was on his feet first, spinning and crouching to face Ruger. 
Ruger staggered to his feet, ignoring the pain in his leg. His legs opened and closed, opened and closed, as if he were squeezing something that would scream. Ruger's eyes narrowed as he moved. Suddenly, it had become a different fight. From a murderous attack, the kind of attack that had worked for him so many times in the past, he now found himself in a real fight. Whoever this guy was, he could fight, and in a twisted way, Ruger was actually enjoying it. They circled each other for a few seconds, making tentative half-lunges, fainting, dodging half-thrown blows. It was Ruger who then made the move, and he made it as fast as the lightning that lit the sky. He used a variation of, Tro's, of Crow's trick and faked high, then dipped and dove for Crow's legs. The move was an old favorite of his. Wrap the legs just above the knees and bear forward. The poor sap goes down hard on his coccyx with two sprained knees to boot. Crow stepped into the rush, and as Ruger's arms closed like crabs pinchers around his legs, he punched downward in as hard and true a vertical line as the drill press, driving the two big knuckles of his right hand between Ruger's blades, dropping all of his body weight with it to try to break the man's back. It was a devastating blow, but the mud was soft and Ruger was hard. Still, the air went out of his lungs for a moment, and he tasted mud in his mouth. Crow stood over him for a moment, chest heaving, heart hammering from fear as much from exertion. He had never seen anyone move so fast or hit so hard or fight with such animal ferocity. He risked a glance at Val, who was on her knees, one hand massaging her throat, her face slack with dizziness and nausea. He tried to give her a reassuring smile and even open his mouth to say something, but Ruger abruptly reached up and punched him right in the balls. Crow screamed and staggered back, cupping his testicles, yet backpedaling to give himself room. Ruger got to his feet, covered in mud like a golem, and he smiled with muddy teeth. I'm going to fuck you up so bad they'll have to bury you in installments. Talk is cheap, dickhead, Crow wheezed. His groin felt as if it were on fire. Ruger hurled a handful of mud at Crow's face and followed with another rush. Crow was not as hurt as he pretended. A strike to the groin, even a hard one, does little damage. It's just pain. And... It is the pain that stops most people, but some people don't care as much about pain. They know it, they're used to it. It may not be an old friend, but it is an old companion. Crow was long acquainted with pain, even the pain of a hard punch in the balls. It hurt him, but hurt can be dealt with. He waited in his half-grouch, looking done in, letting Ruger close the distance, letting Luger pro Ruger provide the force. Then he slid in between Ruger's reaching arms and turned half away, catching one of his arms with one hand and cupping the back of his neck with the other and then pivoted his body as fast as he could. Ruger's force, plus the speed and arc of the turn, plucked Ruger right off the ground and sent him flying right into the driver's door of the big brown Impala. The back of Ruger's head slammed into it and rebounded with a grunt, leaving a deep dent in Missy's door. He slid down to the ground, shaking his head, tried to get to his feet and fell back against the door, head lolling. Crow stepped forward and grabbed him by the hair, hauled him ten inches away from the car so he could look at the man's face, snarled in disgust, then literally threw him backward into the same dented spot of the fender, wringing his skull off the crumpled metal. Ruger sagged bonelessly to the ground by the tire and lay there in the rain, blood coming from his scalp. Crow looked down on him, watching for signs of trickery. 
Ruger didn't flicker so much as an eyelash. Just to be sure, and because his battered face was really starting to hurt like a bastard, and because of the dread that this man still turned an icy knife of terror in Crow's guts, Crow kicked him in the mouth and shattered all of the man's front teeth. Ruger fell over sideways, his face forward into the mud. Now, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a fight scene. God, but it's not over. The officers arrive at the scene, but they're not enough for the sleeping dragon who bares his teeth and lets loose flame with a shot from Crow's gun. Suddenly, the fight is back on, and it's in Ruger's court. Crow manages to get his hands on the downed officer's gun, and a shootout commences. Sugar is shot Ruger is shot repeatedly and rushes into the corn. Chapter 18. Now we have the fallout from the shootout and the attack. Terry and the police swarm the farm, reeling from the violence perpetrated by the Guthries and to Crow. There's a maddening sequence in which the state police don't believe that Crow could have gone toe-to-toe with Ruger and lived. Chapter 19. We start to wrap up as Ruger lies in the corn filled with hate. The spirit of Halloween, the living scarecrow of the corn, approaches him. And elsewhere in the corn, the bone man stays with Henry Guthrie as he dies in a very sweet but sad scene. Part 3. Dry Bone Shuffle Crow dreams, and we get that prophetic nightmare vision again. Pine Deep is burning, and Crow walks through the carnage with a samurai sword in hand. Specifically, he gives us the location, the hospital, which will play a significant role in the conclusion of the trilogy. He teases characters yet to come. When he awakens, Maberry eases back into the immediate concern we all felt in the moment of the gunfight when Crow had gotten shot. When it happened, it illustrated the danger of the moment. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight, and you don't include a gunfight unless your hero is going to take a bullet or two. Now, in the hospital, we learn that they were incredibly superficial wounds, or as superficial as gunshot wounds could be. During a conversation with Terry, we learn that the hurt... We learn that... uh, During a conversation with Terry, we learn that he, I guess, I say the hurt, uh, we learn that he has reinstated a number of deputies, one of whom includes Tow Truck Eddie. As we head into the final act, the novel has gone from a hostage situation to a manhunt. Val is caught in a chain of nightmares, which she is constantly hunted through the corn by Ruger. And meanwhile, Vic heads down to Dark Hollow to check in with Griswold. From there, we get another great supernatural addition. He lowered the rifle and looked back on the front porch. There were two dark bundles on the top of the step. Vic nodded to himself, understanding, then glanced back at the figure. The figure stood there at the edge of the forest wall, nearly invisible against the tall weeds. Vic knew what it was, though he had never actually seen one before, except in the strange and wild dreams that the man sometimes sent him. He knew that the thing was alive, in a manner of speaking, a homunculus. It stood in a man shape, but that shape was twisted and fought to change, bound into the man pattern by a will, Vic knew, greater than the sum of its parts. The homunculus wore shabby old clothes, rough canvas gloves, cast-off shoes. The clothes were splashed with long streaks and splotches of old dried blood. Less than a day old, Vic reflected. On its shoulder squatted a huge carved pumpkin, a jack-o'-lantern with a wicked grin. Vic thought it was a nice touch, and he grinned in return. Through all of the openings in the face, Vic could feel himself being watched by a thousand coal-black eyes. 
The carved smile seemed to Vic to be a reflection not only of the things which it was made, but of the mind that had directed all such things in its place. He felt as if he was seeing the man's real smile this time, not the weird imitation of it he'd seen on Mike's battered face last night, but a real reflection of the man and his power. The search begins. Pharaoh and Lamastra connect with Crow. In Stephen King terminology, our cotet is growing. Chapter 21. The cotet might be growing, but Terry is falling apart internally while keeping a brave exterior. Maberry does that thing that he does, casting all of his characters as he goes with the newest member of our cotet, Dr. Weinstock, who looks like Hal Linden. Though Dr. Wein through Dr. Weinstock, we get an update on our characters, most notably Val, who suffered major physical trauma as well as deeper emotional trauma, and Connie, who was untouched, but is the one suffering the most from a psychological perspective. The encounter with Ruger thoroughly broke her mind. After checking in with a number of the characters, Maberry introduces us to the next member of our quartet, first spotted in Crow's dream sequence, Willard Fuller Newton, who, according to Maberry, should be played by Jason Alexander. Newton mildly harasses Mike, who is attempting to visit Crow in the hospital, and in their encounter, Mike lets slip that word on the street was that Ruger is the famed Cape May killer. Chapter 2. We kick off this chapter with a visit to Dark Hollow and learn a little bit more about the background of Vic, how he was seduced by Griswold and his visions of a bloody future of darkness. We are given a ticking clock. Maberry establishes that this is the last day of September, and by the end of October, for all of the people of the world, the sands of time will have run out. Ruger makes his way to the edge of the swamp, and here the dark forces of Griswold's army begin to grow. Vic points Ruger in the right direction, and what happens is pretty gross. Ruger flops in the mud, and the mud, now an extension of Griswold, begins sucking Ruger's blood. The transference begins, and Ruger is reborn. Chapter 23. Terry's mental state continues to break, and who can blame him? The latest is that he's visited again by his dead sister, who informs him that Griswold is returning and the only way to save his soul is to kill himself. Vic starts to recruit for the man, leading on his former buddies who had all pledged allegiance to Griswold in their youth, starting first with Officer Jimmy Polk. The chapter concludes with Weinstock and Crow talking about Crow's upcoming proposal to Val and Weinstock's secret knowledge that it was good timing due to the fact that based on the blood work from Val, he knows that she's pregnant. Chapter 4. Ruger might have been introduced as an incredibly dangerous threat, but Vic is the one that you need to watch out for. Not only is he evil, but he's smart too, and knows more about what's happening in this town than anybody else. He makes for an incredibly formidable foe. Through his perspective, we learn a little bit about Ruger. I'm sorry, about um, Ubel Griswold, how he was a werewolf when he died, and since then has transformed into something else. And with this, he has the power to transform others, as he does with Boyd, who has been reborn as well. Though he's not quite all there, he's a zombified vamp vampire, a brain-dead monster. Chapter 25. While Terry fights back a suicide attempt at the urging of his dead sister, Crow pops the question to Val in the hospital room. And as Madberry writes... And at that moment, all the lights went out. Chapter 26. Maberry nails the heightened anxiety that would come from this, as Crow and the other cops fear it might not just be a technical issue. He doesn't waste time at all, with Ruger popping up in Crow's hospital room. Crow might have had the advantage last time, barely, but now he's injured and Ruger is undead, so we should be very afraid for our hero. 
We again get an incredibly rendered fight scene, but Crow is outmatched. He's basically fighting the Terminator at this point. Crow tries his best, but Ruger's too much. And when Ruger is going to come in for the Val, um, sorry, when Ruger is going to come in for the kill, Val saves the day, blowing Ruger away with a retrieved gun. As Pharaoh and Lamastra arrive, Rugal, Ruger has the final say. With irresistible force, he pulled himself up and pulled Crow close and whispered in his graveyard voice, Ubel Griswold sends his regards. Then he laughed the coldest laugh Crow had ever heard, and the red light went out of his eyes, and Carl Ruger sank back to the floor. Crow was frozen there, his eyes wide and unblinking, his heart beating painfully in his chest, mouth agape, as the horrors of those five words plunged his entire world into madness. Maberry wraps things up with a neat little epilogue, which concludes with Ruger waiting patiently in the morgue to make his next move. September 30th has rolled over to October, and the countdown to Halloween is on. So guys, that is my like analysis of, right, I should say my, my running commentary of the book. Um, but what I want to do now, I want to talk about uh, some some other things and kind of look at it as a whole. And first I want to talk about the characters. Um, or actually, before I should talk about the characters, let's talk about the spirit of Halloween that's on display here. So, I mean, it's spooky. I mean, everything about this book is a love letter to the season, right down to the town sports team being the Pine Deep Scarecrows. What a wonderful little fictionalized, souped-up version of Salem that Madbury has created here. I mean, here's an actual piece of dialogue from the novel. I'm heading out to the zombie graveyard, Crow said, straddling the ATV. I wanted to boost the smoke machine a bit and maybe repaint the blood on the crypt walls. Maybe it's just the idea of bringing the spirit to, of Halloween to life as a dream come true for me that makes this novel all the more special. I don't know, but I love it. Also, another example of the spirit of Halloween, it's fun. It's just fun. It's a fun book. Like I said, I mean, how awesome was that action scene? I mean, I mean, it has not just horror, but it's just fun through and through. Um, and it's funny. And that's something about about Halloween that's great. One of the best parts of, of scary movies is being able to laugh in the fear. And that happens through and through in this book. Another example of the spirit of Halloween, look, it's not just a vampire story. It's a monster story, okay? And the thing about Halloween is that it's just, there's a variety of monsters that go bump in the night, right? And you get that here. Throughout these three books, you have vampires, you have werewolf, you have ghosts, you have zombies. Um, and then you have something completely else at the end. So you have this smorgasbord of supernatural creatures, and it's just it just makes it such an enjoyable experience. You have the child perspective, which is classic King. And what is Halloween but a child's season? So you get that through Mike. Then you get these two characters named Malcolm Crow and Terry Wolf. Crow and Wolf? Come on, that's just fun. And to know that these two characters have a haunted history in this town, that they were the recipients of horrors um, that, that are, are, are bubbling back up to the surface is, is so Stephen King. And it's perfectly Halloween. It's just wonderful. So let's talk about Crow. He's a childlike character, but he's heroic in his own right. He's a little bit like the Doctor of Doctor Who. And with his showmanship, he's a little bit Willy Wonka, too. So, uh, Madbury writes, The driver stood up, turned around to the kids on the flatbed, then gave them a bright grin that stretched from ear to ear. 
And that, kids, concludes our ride, he said, giving everyone a little bow. The kids on the flatbed stared at him in total comprehensive shock. Claire was the first one to stand up. She turned to the other kids, smiled sweetly, took a bow of her own, and let one of the crowd help her down to the ground. The kids on the flatbed were still stunned to silence. The driver, a small man named Malcolm Crow, who had dark hair, dark eyes, and a wicked grin, plucked his hat off his head and waved it towards the barn. There's refreshments at the concession stand, and if you haven't had enough for one night, visit our haunted house. Only five bucks, it'll scare the bejesus out of you. He winked at the shocked white faces, then hopped down to the ground. Greg Kinnear is referenced later, um, and yes, I mean, when I read this, Crow totally is a younger Greg Kinnear. And for those of you who don't know Greg Kinnear, he's a character actor who once upon a time um, rose to fame when uh, E! Uh, began uh, its, its, um, its spoof and making fun of reality television back in the day when there was something called uh, Talk Soup. And he was the original host and that eventually uh, morphed into The Soup which Joel McHale hosted for a long, long time. But all of that originated with Greg Kinnear, and he honed his sort of charming, wise-ass persona um, on, on that show. And that charming, wise-ass persona is definitely what makes him the perfect casting for Crow. A Halloween enthusiast martial arts expert is a ridiculous yet ridiculously fun concept for a character, um, but that is Crow, and I love it. And he isn't your typical Stephen King character. He's more stylized. King characters are the everyman. Crow has everyman qualities, but he's not the everyman. He's got a gimmick. He's the child in all of us who loves Halloween. He's a holiday-themed main character with a black belt. That is not a set of character traits you'd find in a King book. But, like in a King book, he is... Uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, just like your typical Stephen King character. And as I've stated before, he's comedic, yet strongly heroic, a former cop in a black belt. Early in the novel, Madbury details a scene when he was still in the police force, and he sent an entire gang of bikers to the hospital. It sets the stage for future showdowns and establishes our hero as a credible threat. So you might come to this book for the love letter to Halloween, but you're going to stay because you like hanging out with the characters. And... Um, you stay because you just really fall in love with Crow. And let's talk about Terry. Now, as I stated earlier, I just don't feel like I know Terry all that well. There's a whole backstory to Terry, as well as Crow, that we never spend too much time with, and I'm fine with that. Kind of. Madbury made a decision to provide these characters with an origin tied to the black harvest from 30 years prior, let us know that it happened, and uses it as a piece of the characters in present day. Fans of It might be disappointed with a lack of time spent in the time period, but I kind of appreciate what he's doing. The problem is that it's a tricky balance. With Terry still affected from the injuries suffered that Halloween night 30 years before, it would help to have spent time with him in order to contextualize why he's still affected. Terry's sister was murdered. Malcolm's brother was murdered. Terry was injured. That's just a lot to throw at us. What Mabry does well is give us enough to rationalize why the characters are the way they are. With Wolf and Crow both witnessing horror that Halloween night, Halloween becomes very real to them to the point where Wolf blocks out all the scary stuff from his life and Crow leaned into it as a coping mechanism. And Halloween affects more... So, I'm sorry. And Halloween affects one more character in this novel as well, and that's Pine Deep. Yet, he writes... 
Despite their private terror, both Crow and Terry took a wry amusement at Terry's being afraid of Halloween, at the same time being mayor of the town Time Magazine had once dubbed the most haunted town in America. Pine Deep was one of those peculiar little towns that seemed to foster a common belief in ghosts and ghostly happenings, not just among the town's eccentrics, but in everyone from crossing guards to town selectmen. The haunted history stretched back to colonial times when ghosts of slaughtered Lanai Lanape were said to haunt the new European settlements, and the legends had dwindled with time but seemed to gather steam with each passing year. It was on this rather spooky foundation that the entire financial structure of the town was built. Ever since the black harvest of 30 years ago, when the blight destroyed half the farms in the region, the town had begun to change. Developers had bought up the farms and built expensive houses and estates. Money moved in as town saying went and with it came artists writers and craftspeople who brought stores and began shoveling the tourist dollars the writers wrote horror or gothic novels that made the bestseller lists the artists painted moody pieces that became popular spooky posters and the craftspeople made everything from miniature hand-sewn scarecrows to fabulously expensive jewelry like vampires tears a pair of blood red ruby earrings that Anne rice wore on the cover of publishers weekly the mood of the town and the town seemed to inspire the darker thoughts of the artists, and the tourists love everything they made. Terry, always business smart, joined in with the group that capitalized on the very haunted history of the town and used that as gimmicks for advertising. Soon, everyone up and down the eastern seaboard came to Pine Deep for scary fun and games. The Halloween Parade, the Monster Mash Dance Concert, once years ago featuring, appropriately enough, the Smashing Pumpkins, and the seasonal shopping that attracted the most astute and disconcerting antiquarian antique and people that like antiques the whole town came totally alive at halloween and the accounting ledgers of nearly every store went quickly and happily from red to black between september and christmas with the definite peak being the weeks leading up to trick-or-treat Chills and shivers helped Pine Deep prosper as an increasingly upscale community. The fact that Terry Wolf, with his secret fears, was mayor of Spooksville, as the Philadelphia News recently called it, was truly ironic. Spoiler alert for future events, but it's revealed that Terry is a werewolf. The attack 30 years prior left him a changed man, and there's fun to be had with the fact that this werewolf can't even swear properly. With the worst of his profanity being, geez... I think there's a lot to be joy, a lot of joy in the fact that the town's mayor is a werewolf. Again, this trilogy is bonkers in all of the right ways. It's not as if this isn't seeded into the narrative. Madbury uses descriptions like, as he walked briskly through each patch of brightness, his shadow seemed to lunge and pounce, springing with lupine speed at his own heels and then vanishing as he moved into a different alignment of light and reflection. Not only is he the mayor, not only is he the owner of the hayride, not only is he a werewolf, but he's also the descendant of a man with the incredible name of Mordecai Wolfowitz. And a werewolf haunted by his dead sister to boot. So let's talk about Iron Mike Sweeney. The special child, or chosen child, whatever you want to call him, isn't a new concept in the horror genre, not by a long shot. In fact, King has dedicated a large swath of his works towards the creation of the special child. Danny Torrance, Charlie McGee, Carrie White, The Losers. Hey, as I'm talking about special children, my special child started uh, started talking. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, so guys, just so you know, I have I had to step away from the microphone for a while. Um, 
and then just do some life stuff. And then I, I, I came back and I have the dogs and I have the kid um, who is a little bit vocal right now. I think she's getting tired, but it's not time for bed yet. But so if you hear some extra noise, that's that's, that's probably her. So anyway, so this is a... Uh, <laughs> Um, so Iron Mike is the latest in a long established genre convention. So yes, maybe it's derivative, but again, this is a novel that includes ghosts, werewolves, vampires, zombies, mobsters, and Kung Fu. So to have the chosen one, I'm totally fine with it because it has everything else. So why not? And Madbury does wonders at seeding in his supernatural origins by playing up the natural imaginative qualities of an adolescent. Mike will grow into a supernatural force by the end of the trilogy, but for now, watching him... Hi, honey. Watching him live inside a fantasy world of imagination is perfectly natural and functions as a method of foreshadowing what will come. Either way, his imagination is perfectly rendered. He doesn't just ride on a huffy. He rides on the war machine. The glittering black tubes of its frame were crammed with cutting-edge microtechnology that channeled unbelievable power through his bike and into every cell of Iron Mike's body, filling him with raw power and healing him when he was slashed or cut or burned in his deadly duels with the agents of destruction. The handlebars were tightly wrapped with anti-radiation insulation simulating black electrical tape, and these power bars threw up crackling energy shields through which no amount of laser fire could ever hope to penetrate. The mother box of 12 hyper-accelerating gears was fashioned from alien technology Iron Mike had salvaged from the wreck of an old spacecraft. When Iron Mike mounted the war machine and gripped its handles, he became one with the machine and his cyborg system drew energy from it just as his mind drew knowledge from his interface with the Infinity Mind uplink he wore on his belt. Disguised as a mere Sony Walkman, the Infinity Mind was simply the projection into his reality on a, of an omnidimensional supercomputer built by the same race that had made the alien spacecraft. The Infinity Mind share its limitless data with Iron Mike, the enemy of evil, giving him specialized knowledge that had many times saved his life. It's little touches like that that capture the essence of childhood. In the 60s, King turned Bill's bike into silver. In the 2000s, Mabberry turns Mike's bike into alien technology. It's the same concept, just a little different. We have an entire section dedicated how he views his life, not as a paper boy, but as a hero throwing bombs into enemy territory. And it's magical, and you can't help but like Mike, um, which is which is key, and it's huge because he goes through a lot. So we have to have sympathy, and we have to buy the journey that he's going to take. And he's under he's going to undergo a pretty incredible journey by the end of this trilogy. So let's talk about Val. In the hands of a lesser writer, she'd be a one-dimensional damsel in distress. She even comes dangerously close to being the wish, the male wish fulfillment fantasy, whose constant sex talk with Crow is just this side of preposterous. Thankfully, Mabberry infuses her with enough independence for her to stand on her own legs. She, like the male counterparts, has a troubled past. She, too, is having troubled dreams. She's not sidelined in her own story. In fact, there are times she straight up snatches the story right out of Crow's hands. I do need to say that Mabberry does lay it on thick with the sex scenes. I get it. They're in love. They bang all the time. But, you know, he writes scenes like he cried out as he rose to that crest where this is nowhere to go but over and over he went, sailing into the golden intensity of his orgasm, and Val caught up and she came again. It's a bit much. It'd be one thing if Mabberry described one sex scene to rule them all, but he goes and peppers them throughout the entire book. 
Like I said, I get it. They're in a healthy relationship. There's nothing wrong with that. But just because two people are having sex all the time doesn't mean we need detailed description of every act. I'm sure the characters need to use the toilet on multiple occasions throughout the day too, but I don't need details of their bowel movements either. Tow Truck Eddie. Okay, this guy. I love how this novel has various shade of monsters. This guy looks like a monster, a giant chiseled monstrosity of a man who seeks to crush a teenaged boy. But the fact that he, in his mind, is, is righteous and doing God's work, it just makes him for just a, a very original deviation of, of the rest of the monsters that we get in our story, the literal monsters like the werewolves and the vampires and the, the human monsters like, like Vic or even Jim Polk, who isn't evil, but he does an evil thing by selling his soul and goes along and assists a man that he knows is evil. And, you know, Jim Polk is a, is a weak man. Um, and then contrastly, we have... Totrucketti, who is strong in really every aspect of his life. He's strong in faith and he's strong uh, in body. And he presents an incredible, I said this earlier, a, a huge wild card in the story. And just a, an incredibly dangerous and intimidating presence. And that says a lot because we have, um, you know, mobsters running around and we have, you know, serial killers running around and literal monsters running around. And the fact that Tow Truck Eddie might be the scariest of them all really, really says something. And then lastly, I just want to talk about Vic. Okay. Vic is very reminiscent of a type of Stephen King character that we have seen before, except that Maberry really takes it up that next notch where he isn't... I don't want to say he isn't an idiot because like, so, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking a lot of Ace Merrill here um but i mean someone like vic i mean vic might be the most dangerous i know that i just said that tow truck eddie might be the most monstrous but vic might be the most dangerous because of his ruthless intelligence and the fact that he sold his soul and he knows what he's doing he knows that he's working for a literal monster he knows that he knows who ubel griswold is he knows that he's a werewolf he knows um his origins and he knows what's going to happen to this town and to the rest of the world once the red wave hits. So this is a man that, that thoroughly knows what he's doing. And on top of it all, he is constantly raping uh, Lois Sweeney. And he is um, regularly uh, assaulting her son, Mike. So in every aspect, this man is horrific. And he makes for an incredible villain. And of the villains in this story, he... He definitely stands out. Um, so, I mean, he's definitely a character that you just can't wait for him to, to get uh, the, the cup up and come up in because he's just so thoroughly despicable. And lastly, guys, let's talk about the Kingisms because we have, even though it's the Jonathan Mabberry story, we definitely have Stephen Kingisms. And one, it's the small town, just like Castle Rock, just like Derry, just like Jerusalem's Lot or Ludlow or whatever. Um, we have a small town. We have the chosen one slash special child like Jake Chambers or Danny Torrance or Charlie McGee. Here we have Iron Mike Sweeney. Number three, the cycle of evil. The fact that uh, the, the, the werewolf, Ubel Griswold, doesn't just arrive to this town. Um, he has been in this town and the, the forces of good stood against him years before is very much in line with the cycle of evil that we have seen in The Stand and The Gunslinger and most especially It. Forces of good empowering the everyman to stand up to evil. And again, we've seen that again and again and again in the force of the white that uh, has been littered throughout Stephen King's uh, novels. 
Number five, the prophetic dream. We see this a lot in Madbury's three books here where everyone seems to have a prophetic dream of the, the future. Number six, the, the jokester character. Um, so I would say that, uh, you know, Malcolm Crow is sort of a combination of the qualities of a Stu Redman as well as a Eddie Dean. Number seven, the charismatic psychopath. Carl Ruger here is reminiscent of George Stark or Randall Flagg or any of the other charismatic psychopaths that Stephen King has created throughout his career. And lastly, we have the alcoholic. Um, Crow is an alcoholic and who goes to AA. He's battled his own demons. And uh, we have definitely seen that in Stephen King's works. So, guys, that is that is it. Um, I, I hope that if you have gotten through listening to this, um, I really do implore you, if you haven't read uh, Ghost Road Blues, to, to go out and read it because it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. It's so much fun, and as I record this, it's, uh, I believe it's the 11th of October. It's the 11th of October, so we have quite enough time before Halloween comes, and if you really want to get into the Halloween spirit, I can't think of a, of a better way to go about getting in the spirit than reading Jonathan Mabberry's Pine Deep Trilogy. So make sure you go out and do that. If you haven't done so already, uh, head on over to iTunes and leave a review. That would really help me out a lot. Uh, feel free to write in to Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, and the next episode, I will be reviewing the, the, the second part of the Pine Deep Trilogy, Dead Man's Song. So I... Until I see you, what do I want to say? I say, may you have long days and pleasant nights. That's it. So um, until I see you next, guys, which won't be that long, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Black ghost in the picture. And the black ghost in the shadow, too. Oh, a black ghost in the picture And a black ghost in the shadow too You just can see him, but you can't hear him talk Ain't nothing else that a black ghost can do Black Ghost Blues.